This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. The earthquake that rocked Haiti last week has caused unimaginable death and destruction. A reminder to everyone that catastrophes like these are usually unforeseeable and therefore almost impossible to prepare for. Yet ironically, scientists almost two years ago warned Haiti about an impending major earthquake in the area. The Haitian government lacked the resources to follow up on the report, which raises the question of whether any country or region of the world, rich or poor, can take meaningful steps to avoid the destruction caused by catastrophes of any kind, from earthquakes and hurricanes to terrorist attacks and pandemics. Knowledge at Wharton asked professors Howard Kunruther and Michael Yusim, authors of a new book entitled Learning from Catastrophes, Strategies for Reaction and Response, and also Professor Morris Cohen to talk about the challenges raised by what seems to be an increase in the incidence of disasters worldwide. Howard, let me start with you. As I noted, although scientists predicted an earthquake in this area almost two years ago, the Haitian government was unable to act on the warning. If they had been able to respond, what could they have done? Now, that's an excellent question, Robbie. I think that we're dealing with a situation in Haiti where, as you in- indicated, poverty is really dominating the scene. And so one of the key questions that comes up with this Haitian earthquake, and your question is, what could have been done in the way of preparation? You had houses that were really poorly designed. Uh, to design better houses requires a great deal of money and resources, which I think is needed, and then we can talk about that later in terms of what can be done. I think it would have been extremely extraordinarily hard for Haiti to have prepared for this without a great deal of assistance from the rest of the world. I think I would just add, Robbie, the idea that big problematic developments, disasters of one kind or another, hurricanes, earthquakes, tsunamis, rare events, sometimes we refer to them as once in a century, don't sit at the front of people's consciousness, their awareness. It's not in the front of a a legislative body thinking about the budget for this year. So we know that they are potentially out there, the forecasts are there, but I think one of the great challenges that uh, we all face is becoming better at being able to translate into what we do now uh, an assessment of high consequence but low likelihood events. Uh, Haiti itself, uh, very short on resources, even had they been more aware or more thinking about the the one and, in this case, a two-century event, I think uh, with more resources, points of intervention were feasible. But prior to even thinking about allocating resources to improve the housing stock, to bolster the construction of schools and the like – Uh, critical that, and I think we've learned this, that we find devices to help people in legislatures and executive offices in preparation and planning to know better how to think about these low likelihood but hugely consequential events. Uh, Morris, uh, what are the supply chain challenges that the relief efforts face in such situations? And uh, are there any lessons that we learned from the tsunami that could have been helpful in Haiti? Well, I think, you know, we're seeing, unfortunately, uh, as this tragedy unfolds, that the the big bottleneck now that this event has occurred is essentially a logistics problem. 
that it's not even a question of shortages of resources. There's lots of drinking water. There's lots of food. But uh, there, it's impossible to get it to where it's needed. And this is an incredibly complicated supply chain problem. And, and we've seen the same thing in the tsunami. We've seen it in, in other natural disasters. And and uh, the world has recognized this and has and there's been developments to develop better response techniques, better uh, deployment, prior deployment of resources. I mean, it's ironic. These events are once in a century, once in a two century. So they're, we say they're, you know, they're, we, we can't predict them, but with certainty they will occur. So we have to be prepared. We don't know where or when they'll, we, they, they will occur, but we have to deploy resources in advance of them. And I think that's, that's a very important issue. So having the right resources, having the right processes in place, even in a, in a more advanced or developed environment, would have been an enormous challenge. In Haiti, you can, it's compounded by the fact that it was already an environment that was, that was, was hurting in, the, in this regard. So the challenge of getting the resources to where they're needed in time and, and the clock is ticking here. We're t- you know, it's going to be. It, I, I feel, unfortunately, it may get very w- much worse before it gets better. What's been the role of the media in showing the extent of this tragedy and also encouraging people to use Twitter and other social media to donate money to the relief effort? Well, I, I think the media always plays a, a critical role here. And I think in the case of Haiti, what has happened, certainly in the United States, and let's speak, I can, can't speak about other countries as much as sort of following what's happened here, is that people have been extraordinarily sympathetic. I think the Obama administration has played a very, very creative and very important leadership role here in getting people to think about things. And I think in the spirit of the comments that Mike and Morris have made and that we were all talking about is there is this myopia here that we have to at least reflect on. People are willing to give money now, and you are getting contributions. There is an opportunity, I think, for large contributions to come from the private sector and hopefully from the governments, and we are seeing some of that now. But if it doesn't happen in the next few weeks, there'll be another crisis that will then dominate the scene, and we're going to be forgetting Haiti in the way that we forgot our tsunami and other problems that we've been referring to. And I so I think the problem in terms of how you're going to deal with the short run, but at the same time trying to get large contributions for long-range planning and and trying to get Haiti in a position where it can really change. And so I think there's a challenge here, as we've been hearing from, I think, the comments we've all been saying, but there's a tremendous opportunity. And I think the comments that have been made by a number of people, and Hillary Clinton is one who has said a number of things, and there was a very, very interesting column that David Brooks wrote in terms of sort of the poverty aspect and how to deal with it. I think we need to do things that can really reflect the long run. And the media can play an important role here, but keeping it on the media's agenda is going to be extremely difficult after a period of three or four weeks, at least from past experience. That, that was my, my next question. I wonder what Morris and Mike think about that. I mean, the public has a very short attention span, uh, and it's clear that what's needed in, this con- in a country like Haiti is long-range thinking. I mean, is, is there a chance that life could actually get better in this country now that global attention is focused on the challenges? Is, there, is that just wishful thinking? Well, you know, there, 
There was an interesting article in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend that talked about major disasters that have occurred in cities in the last 300 years, and in many cases, Lisbon and San Francisco and, you know, and other places where these disasters has led to the rebirth of these cities and major investments. But the betting seems to be that this is not going to happen in Haiti, that Haiti has been a problem case for the world for a long time. And will attitudes change sufficiently because of this disaster? Because the amount of money that's, even with Twitter notwithstanding, uh, not that much money has been obligated compared to other disasters. We're talking about peanuts, I think I read in this morning's paper, c- compared to what's needed. So very, you know, it's, it's the media is bringing it to our attention, but um, the response that's needed is, I think, an order of magnitude or more greater than what, what has happened. I think there's an enormous gap still. You know, I think I would add, Robbie, that this disaster is one of just enormous scale. We just have to remind ourselves that millions, several million people directly affected Death tolls could go over 100,000 at least. But having said that, in our recent past, we've been through some events of comparable magnitude. So the uh, earthquake in China, for example, uh, back in 08, that is estimated to have killed about 70,000 people. The tsunami back in December 04, the estimated loss of life there was something around 280,000 or more. Uh, Katrina itself killed 1,300, but uh, well over a million and a half people were evacuated, and we know the enormous consequences that persist to this day of that disaster and its scale. And I think we all appreciate that the media right now has uh, taken extraordinary risks, personal risks, on the part of reporters and, and the crews that have gone with them to report to us as graphically as they can uh, what it means to be in the Port-au-Prince now <clears throat> under a pile of rubble, still some life left in you. And in that sense, I think the the flow of cash, the extraordinary outpouring of support is generated, I think, very importantly by the media. But as my two colleagues have uh, implied here, we often do too soon forget. It's not a media problem. It's a more general problem that leaders of organizations, those in in the uh, those in office, elected office, those responsible at the U.S. Agency for International Development, the World Bank, the U.N. agencies, uh, it would be helpful, I think, after this immediate crisis has been hopefully ultimately brought to a uh, to some kind of end, at least in terms of emergency services, that we take a step back and ask what can we do as reporters, what can we do as teachers, what can we do as organizational leaders to better prepare internationally, globally, for the kind of disasters that are out there. And Morris said it well just a few minutes ago, uh, an earthquake like this, we don't know when it's coming, but we know it will come sooner or later. And there's a long list of such low probability but high consequence events that I think we all need to become better at thinking about addressing and being prepared for you could uh, probe a little bit deeper, not just on the media broadly, but on social media like uh, Twitter and Facebook, for example. Uh, one thing that is very striking this time is that in previous catastrophes, the highest amount of money that the Red Cross had raised uh, through social media was about $3 million. Uh, this time, within days uh, uh, of 
uh, of, of the earthquake, uh, I think it raised $20 million, uh, much of it through text messages. Uh, uh, now, we have all heard about the wisdom of crowds concept. There's something to be said about the altruism of crowds and you know, w what that shows about the way the media is changing. Well, let, let me uh, raise the, the, the issue that Morris partly brought up when he indicated that this is a, a larger amount of money, certainly, than we've had in the past. But it isn't the kind of money that is really needed. And so maybe you can use Twitter and Facebook as a signal of the concern that people have to really try to use that to generate much larger funding to do the kinds of things that are necessary. Now, one example of that is that the World Economic Forum has now taken a stand that they are going to use Haiti as a key issue in the conference next week in Davos. Now, the fact that they want to use that as an issue for people to think about is an opportunity to really raise not just millions, but billions of dollars that would really be necessary from the private sector and from groups that could afford and could provide. And there's an opportunity here for altruism at a broader level. So I think if we can use Twitter and Facebook as a way of saying, look, there are things that are needed at a bigger level in order to do the kinds of, of, of reconstruction that is necessary, then I think you have a chance. And it's a chance that you, is an uphill battle, given everything we all know about Haiti, to do the kinds of things that are necessary. And let me use one example that I think is an important, instructive one from a previous earthquake. The 1923 earthquake in Tokyo destroyed the entire city. Frank Lloyd Wright's Imperial Hotel was the one building that managed to at least stand, that it didn't even stand fully there. Now, the government was really very concerned. They had tried to develop a plan. They never really implemented the plan. But there's one thing that they did do, and we know about Japan today versus where it was in the 20s. They developed reconstruction standards, and they made sure that buildings that were designed, that were rebuilt, met those standards. The challenge is going to be, in a country with abject poverty, can one have enough money that international organizations will be able to do the kind of thing that Japan did, where they were a richer country and and we're able to do things in, in a variety of ways that Haiti may not be able to, to redesign that city. And that's what people are looking for, and that's the challenge, as both um, Mike and Morris have said, in term, and we've all said in terms of the short run, can you have uh, enough of a strategy and plan that that could be implemented with enough money? And Twitter and Facebook are not going to be the things that are going to do it in terms of that kind of money. Let me just add, I mean, I think one thing the media has done more and more, and this this disaster, you know, illustrates it is it's no longer something that occurs in a distant place that we can't imagine. It's brought to bear. We see it in real time. We can experience it, and and so the altruistic response is there. But I, I absolutely agree with Howard that uh, the long term solution is not tens of millions. It's tens of billions, and 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 where is that going to come from to invest in Haiti? My bigger concern right now is, yes, there are long-term issues. We can redesign the building codes. We can invest in the infrastructure. But I think we're facing a crisis between now and, let's say, the next two weeks where you could have riots in the street. You could have widespread disease. Uh, you could have all kinds of issues occurring. And it's not clear to me how that is going to be alleviated. I mean, the U.S. Army is on the scene. But in order for them and everyone else, the UN, to address this problem, it's, it's to me, it's on the order of magnitude like the invasion of Normandy. You're going to have to have an army 
invade the country and occupy it in order to solve this problem. And if not, then people are going to start dying in greater numbers through disease and starvation. And, and to me, that this immediate problem is not, I don't see the answer to that at this point. So how, how developed is the insurance market in Haiti? I mean, how much do you think insurers might be liable for, or is there no insurance market there? Uh, we have not heard very much, and we study insurance. That's an important part. I've heard very, very little about any insurance in Haiti. Uh, my guess is, although we can check that out and others who are hearing this podcast can comment on this, is that there's very, very little. And that is one of the challenges in the emerging economies. You don't have the institutions that really exist as we do in the developed world for dealing with insurance. And so uh, my guess is that there's be very little insurance. Most of these homes were very, very poorly constructed. There isn't an insurance company I could imagine that would have been really willing to provide the Kind of coverage uh, that would be necessary to help on the rebuilding. So I think we're really talking about new money coming in. And I do want to add what Morris has said, and I know Mike and I have chatted about this in the context of our own book on learning from catastrophes, that the very short run has to be dealt with. You cannot, everything we're talking about the long run, it pales if we don't get this country to the point where it is able to survive and, uh, and, and cover these problems. And so we have this real challenge here that if we don't do that, everything we can talk about long-range strategy, which is what we're all advocating, is really going to go by the wayside because everyone is going to have to put out fires in terms of the next few weeks or months or possibly years. And all of the good intentions and even maybe the money that is raised, unless you can deal with this, may go by the wayside. So we have to put them together. But on the insurance side, it would be very interesting to hear a little bit more on what, that ha what actually exists. My guess is there's very little. Just, uh, Robbie, to add uh, to that, the immediate consequences are in front of us every day right now, the, the catastrophic impact on, on life and limb. In the weeks ahead, my colleagues have already said it, the problems are going to be different, but they're going to be in some respects no less severe. And of course, when disasters do strike of this scale, it's the most vulnerable populations, the very poor children, the those who are in need of medical care already who are most affected. And so I think these second-order consequences of this particular earthquake playing out over the next several weeks are going to be uh, not in terms of direct threat to life, but uh, certainly in terms of economics and just social existence, extremely impactful. And of course, the economy has been uh, just about stopped uh, in its tracks here. And so once we get through this immediate search and recovery phase, and then start worrying about simply reconstructing housing and beyond, there's a whole issue here of how to get this economy back, which was not in great shakes to begin with, back on its feet. It's a way of saying that the world has a long-term obligation to hang in here, and we do worry that after media attention backs off as the media problems are solved, that these more far-reaching problems, social, economic, and beyond, will not be addressed. Just to finish this off, I think there's an opportunity for social entrepreneurs with the benefit of the web these days, uh, everything that goes with that, including uh, Twitter and well beyond, to develop ways to involve thousands, maybe millions of people around the globe in not just immediate relief for Haiti, but for longer-term investment in Haiti. If question for Mike again, uh, following up on what Morris said earlier about the necessity for perhaps 
uh, an invading army to, to, to enter and solve the problem. Uh, very often after a catastrophe of this time, especially if there is the leadership of a very poor country involved, you have these giant relief agencies that come in and, and try to make things happen. Uh, to what extent is this really desirable and what does it say about leadership uh, uh, and, and uh, indeed the idea of sovereignty in, in this global economy? You know, there is such a lesson, a lesson here from the Haiti experience or the Haitian experience, I should put it that way, and that is in the immediate aftermath of the, the earthquake itself, the uh, UN representatives on the ground who were partly responsible for distributing relief, uh, they themselves, many of them were killed, did their whole operation out of commission. And it's akin to the fact that some of the nerve centers for New York response that should have been able to then pick up quickly as 9-11 began to unfold back in 01, some of the nerve centers for the New York New York City itself were actually in the buildings directly impacted by the two attacks early on 9-11. It's really a statement that when it comes to large-scale disasters, <clears throat> we're generally underprepared organizationally to respond in a systemic, systematic, comprehensive way. No surprise, no blame here to be allocated. It's just a, it's a reality of life. And as we've watched, in fact, the United States um, come to, for example, control air traffic at the airport in the vacuum that was left there, to me, it was symptomatic of the fact that many organizations, many agencies are simply filling the vacuum uh, with very good motives here to help the country at least get through this crisis. Longer term, you raise a great question. At some point, the U.S. is going to have to back out of there, cede sovereignty back to the uh, hopefully soon-functioning government of Haiti. More generally, though, here's a statement to make. This is, as we've already said, not the first disaster of this scale, for sure not the last. It's beyond any community's capacity, or in some cases, any country's capacity to adequately respond. And isn't one of the lessons here that uh, as a universe, as a globe, we have to develop better mechanisms, better organizational schemes, stronger forms of commitment on the part of people privately through the United Nations and other vehicles to be ready to assist and to have a scheme for intervention without this having been, without it having to be quite so ad hoc as it has been. Well, you know, I think uh, what Mike says under, underscores the fact that one of the key challenges here is one of coordination. There are many agencies and, and entities that are prepared and, and even on the scene uh, and uh, have been less effective than they possibly could be. Uh, uh, the finger-pointing has already begun. The French have accused the Americans of invading Haiti, and uh, you know, and the sovereignty issue is, is raised. But the ability to coordinate these things at a, on a global level is, is an enormous challenge. I mean, the United Nations has developed... Uh, new processes and procedures for disaster relief. Uh, there's been a lot of progress made in the Red Cross in figuring out how they can deal with these contingencies. But if you look at the scale of what happened in Haiti, it's, it's not anything close to what they were prepared to do. And no one agency, not even one country, has sufficient resources to solve this problem. So the problem of coordination is, is there and real. And yes, we need to figure out how to solve it in a better way. Um, 
you know, but I'm not sure, I don't see the answer to that, at least in the short run. So. The one point that I would add to what um, my colleagues have mentioned is that this really is going to have to fall at the end of the day on the Haitian government. That in some sense, if they could see this as an opportunity and that the leaders sort of say, we could change things in a way that will benefit us whatever their values are, uh, and hopefully they're positive in terms of trying to change things, and take the a role of co helping to coordinate with international organizations and serve as a case study, and use that term that we use here, <laughs> Wharton, here's a case study of how a country has managed to do it and see the opportunity to do it, there's a chance for something like this to happen. But if they feel that it's business as usual and that they have to fall back on where they are, then there's really, really going to be a extraordinarily difficult no matter what the UN does or what the World Bank does or any of these international organizations. It really has to be a partnership and I think one of the open questions and I think there's probably a lot of discussion going on right now with the government is to see the, the challenges but also the opportunity to take that leadership role and, and coordinate in such a way so that things can happen which otherwise would not. Uh Mike and Howard, in your book, um, do you discuss what some of the behavioral biases are that cause bad decisions to be made about the likelihood of disasters? Biases, an interesting word, uh, Robbie. Uh, let, me, let me start. Mike and I have talked a lot about this, and it's an, an area certainly that both of our centers have been concerned about. I think that there are, there are two biases that we've actually been talking about here in, in this. One of them is this notion of a short-run bias and the notion of myopia and the notion that I can't really think more than the next year or two years ahead. And there may be very good reasons for that, and there may be a whole reward system and incentive system that encourages that. So a myopia bias and it cannot happen to me bias that sort of says, look, I want to put this out. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about a lot of things that I either uh, have to think about today or in the case of many, many situations where it says, look, here are the pleasant reasons for living here. I don't want to think about a disaster. So that bias. And then the last bias, which is the one that, of course, has happened right after the earthquake, what we call an availability bias. The minute that disaster occurs, it's on everyone's agenda for that short period of time. And Twitter and Facebook and a variety of things are going to mobilize a set of activities. And so we have these three kind of combinations. Beforehand, it's not going to happen. The availability, it does happen. And then I really don't want to think about this after two, a few weeks because there are other things that are going to dominate the scene. And it's a combination of these that make it really, really difficult to deal with. You know, another shortcoming to add to that is just who we are is that we tend to hate bad news coming up from below. We don't want to hear it if it reflects poorly on us, for example. And as is pretty well documented now in the current financial crisis that we're hopefully coming to something of an end of, that many of the problems that took down companies like AIG and Fannie Mae, got to some of the other big investment banks directly as well, were problems that people could see. That is, those on the front line recognized that the subprime, subprime mortgages were uh, shaky, that everything was going to be okay so long as everything was going up. But if there was a tipping point reached and a syst systemic uh, decompression, so to speak, that there would be uh, <laughs> big problems uh, forthcoming. People in the trenches often saw exactly th those problems. And as they sought to commun communicate upwardly, the warning signs 
the resistance was pretty much everywhere at the top, not because people are perverse and don't want to face problems, but it's the nature of who we are. We don't like bad news. If you want the extreme example that I think sums it up as well as any I've ever seen, as we recall in January 1986, when Challenger was launched, the space shuttle that had the problem with the infamous O-rings that cracked under cold conditions, which described the launch conditions that particular early morning uh, at the Cape in Florida when Challenger was uh, indeed launched, the problems with the O-rings actually were known by the maker of the O-ring, at least the engineers who were most directly in contact uh, with those particular parts of the booster rocket in which they were located. Despite efforts to bring those concerns upward, top management did not absorb that information. Now, in defense of top management, there is just lots of bad news that comes up every day. And we have to become mindful of the fact that some criticism, some bad news, we cannot and should not take into account. Other information, though, we should. So when it comes to behavioral biases, I would simply add the need for a device that would help us be better at, you might call it peripheral vision, as one of our colleagues has written about, who, uh, in which you can see the warning signs, the fact that indeed there were warning signs in Haiti about the prospect of an earthquake, but ignored by everybody, including myself. I didn't pay any attention to those, of course, didn't put money into something that might have averted that. Uh, I think that particular behavioral problem is one of the major sources of why we seem to stumble into these low-probability, high-consequence events too little prepared. So how how can someone or or the world prepare for such events? In fact, can you prepare? Does your book say anything about that? But just to pick up on this and turn it back to uh, Howard very quickly, our view is that Understanding what has happened in the past as graphically as we can possibly communicate what has happened in the past. So <clears throat> the great hurricane that hit Myanmar, the great flooding in Mozambique, the Katrina experience, the 9-11 experience, the Challenger disaster. Uh, it's not that we want to de- dwell on these terrible, terrible circumstances and ordeals that people have gone through, but in our view – we often remember most the need to stay vigilant and be focused on working with bad news and risky circumstances. I think, just to bring this to a close, that if we want to do something for the people of Haiti, along with all the things that millions of people are doing now in terms of immediate relief, it would be to take the lessons of Haiti from the experience, as graphic and as detailed as we can describe them, communicate them, and help all of us be ready for the next Haiti-like event. Just to add to what Mike uh, has said, I think one of the challenges that we've had in all of these uh, low-probability events is 
that when we are able to put this below our threshold level of concern by saying this is a one and two century event, this is one, this is below what we need to think about, including the Challenger accident, because there was an understanding that there was the possibility of something happening. They say, well, the probability is sufficiently low that we can ignore it. That is the major problem in terms of not putting it on the agenda. So one of the reasons that we've been all talking about longer term is just even a dimension of probability on a long-term basis may get people to think about things in a different way. I'll just use one little example that we have used in even uh, our uh, class experience. You tell an individual there's a one in a hundred chance of a flood or earthquake or hurricane occurring next year, and you need to take some steps to protect yourself. And you ask people what they would do or how much they would pay, and the one in a hundred sort of looms as a relatively low event. If we change the time horizon, and think long-term and tell the individual that if you live in this house for a 25-year period, it's greater than one in five that you will have at least one flood, earthquake, or hurricane that would occur with one in 100 next year. The reaction is extraordinarily different. People pay more. They pay more attention to it. They think about things in a different way. And so a, a, a challenge, I think, that we are all gearing is when you have these events, let's think about these things on a longer-term basis present information in that way, and think of strategies, we may be able to do a better job of preparing if people feel that this event is more likely to happen than that it-won't-happen-to-me event. You know, there's been a lot written, a lot of it by you, Howard, uh, about um, new approaches to mitigation and preparedness and emergency response and all that. What does this book, your new book, offer that goes beyond that or that's different um, that, that you feel would be especially helpful given what's happened in Haiti? Well, I think the one thing that we try to do in this book, and I'm going to turn it to Mike for comments from, this, uh, from his vantage point, and what we found very exciting is we've tried to put together in this book a group of people who are part of a global agenda council associated with the World Economic Forum who had basically experience around the world. And so we were, this is not a book by us. We are authors or editors of 20 people who have written from their perspective, not only about natural disasters, but about the financial crisis, about pandemics, about other kinds of disasters, where there are principles here that we felt really are important. And the principles that we are, you've heard a bit about uh, in the context of what are you going to do beforehand? How can you think about what will happen afterwards? How do you put these together? And I think the the experience that, uh, that uh, let me speak for myself in terms of working with Mike on, on this aspect and all these people is that we have gotten a much broader perspective from not only their own background, and some people come from meteorology, some people come from the, uh, the financial, Susan uh, uh, Johnson uh, had a whole history with Goldman Sachs, uh, and as a result was able to talk to uh, the financial crisis from, uh, from that vantage point. Uh, gave us, I think, a broader perspective. We view this book really as something that is not just uh, a do-it-yourself kind of thing for natural disasters, but really how do you think more broadly about a variety of these low-probability events. Right? And, Robbie, the thrust of the book is really a product of a, um, a movable seminar. Twenty people, we've met uh, several times at at some length, people who were expert on financial crisis, on pandemics, on physical crises like we see in Haiti. And with that 
depth understanding in different areas and what went wrong, we look for the common themes that seem to explain why, in all these cases, things went wrong. If we can diagnose, diagnose what went wrong, that's certainly the right step to take in looking now to how to, on how to make it right before this kind of disaster happens again. So, for instance, we've observed in all these different settings a lack of readiness on the part of people to swiftly intervene, to to know the drill, for many different units to be ready to orchestrate public and private relief together, something that Morris has alluded to earlier. And just to sum all this up, we, in the end, identify half a dozen, we call them guiding principles, that anybody concerned with disaster Avoidance, or if a disaster hits, disaster recovery, ought to be mindful of. For instance, this is a almost a chestnut from the field of, of leadership and leadership development. No better time to have leadership and all the principles that go that with that in place before you need it. Number two, leadership is not natural. It's not a it's not a natural skill that most people bring to the table. Therefore, looking ahead, once we can get beyond Haiti, our book does suggest it'd be a great time to take the tsunami, the events in Haiti, the disaster in Myanmar a couple of years back now, Challenger, the implosion of AIG, and with that collective experience, work with these principles, build others, and then going all the way back to new social media – I think we have an opportunity now for these ideas to be communicated far more extensively than they have been in the past. So in the same sense that President Obama built some of his success with the grassroots through social media, just making this a nonpartisan statement here, I think with these ideas, these principles now pretty clear, at least to our group of 20, as to what's really vital going forward, I think we have better devices, if you will, for this these ideas to be communicated out. Since the book is titled Learning from Catastrophes, could you suggest a couple of things that you hope people will learn about uh, from catastrophes from your book? Well, I think just building on the, the comments that Mike made on, on the principal side, I think one of the key lessons of learning from catastrophes is this is not an isolated event in the sense that only one country is involved. We are in an interconnected world. We have interdependencies. We have a whole variety of things that really impinge on all of us. And to the extent that we see these as global risks rather than risk for the country, and I think the media and the variety of t- uh, what we we have today communicates it in that fashion, we have a better opportunity of sort of bringing all of us together to think about that. And so I would say the interconnectedness and the notion and that we have been stressing, all of us, and from the very beginning, of trying to think more broadly and trying to think long-term and coordinating these activities, both in the short-term and long-term, are the lessons that we would like to see coming out of this book. I think I would add to that, Howard, the idea that Catastrophes have been here since people have been on Earth. The scale of the catastrophes we've seen, though, in recent years, uh, in some respects, have become more significant in part because population growth, the concentration of people in areas that ordinarily would not be inhabited because of urban pressures and all that. 
And thus, as we look ahead next 10 or 15 years, uh, again, going back to the maybe the uh, what, what Haiti can, can help us do now, we see the vital importance for becoming more mindful of the fact that low probability, big deal events are going to happen. I think Morris said it so well. They are going to happen. We don't know where or when. And therefore, within our country, and certainly even more importantly, within the world community, uh, our conclusion is we've got to develop devices, if you will, mechanisms to build leadership and commitment to prevent the disasters that are avoidable. Some disasters are, to use a tennis phrase here, unforced errors. Other disasters are not. Whichever way they come, uh, we certainly want to be prepared to have in place relief, recovery, and again, there are many specifics to go with that, but I think the summary line is uh, organization and preparedness for what lies ahead. If I could add a comment. All right. (laughs) On an optimistic note, I think we have seen the development of better tools for the allocation of resources and for planning for these types of low probability events based on contingencies. In many ways, what we're dealing with here is analogous to a real option. Uh, Society has to make investments in advance of these disasters. What I've seen, even in the more mundane levels, like in supporting, you know, mission-critical products and after-sales and so on, the decisions you make after the event occur are primarily, the effectiveness of of mitigating is primarily determined by the decisions you've made prior to its occurrence. And we all know that. And uh, we are seeing better tools. And it's not that we can forecast it. And it's not that we can prevent it. We have to figure out, given that it's going to occur, how will we respond? And the decisions that we make about how we respond can only be made, 99% of them are made prior to the event. And that requires better decision-making tools. And, and as I said, optimistically, I see we, are de- we have developed better tools. We are making better use of information. So the technology and, and the will to use this, I think, is improving. Well, thank you, Morris, for that note of optimism in the face of this unbelievable tragedy. And Mike and, and Howard, thank you both. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.